And instead of us spending our time and investing our money and trying to get her to change to who we are, we have to spend our time to understand who she is and how we can reimagine ourselves for her and her success. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. Happy New Year and welcome back to In the Know. This episode features an In the Know forum recorded at our most recent annual Congress in San Francisco. It features Russell Lowry Hart from Amarillo College discussing a systematic change at his institution through the use of a model student named Maria. Maria is smart, capable, ambitious, and a different student than Amarillo's system was designed to support. By empowering Maria as a secret shopper, asking her to rewrite the college's values and redesign systems around her, completion rates improved from 19 to 48 percent in over three years. This is part two of a two-part episode. Check out part one if you missed it. We introduced Maria, a model student who is a first-generation, part-time, female, Latina, and has substantial financial barriers. She works on average two part-time jobs, is 27 years old, and raises 1.2 children. She was created to draw attention to the type of student the college should be catering to. So the key for me in understanding Maria and Linda is that we have to figure out how we can systemically and intentionally love her to success. So our theory of change around loving uh, Maria to success is threefold. We can love her to success by removing a life barrier in an accelerated learning environment with 87% of our classes now being offered in eight weeks because for Maria, a five to six year window to get an associate's degree is not possible and she doesn't see hope in that, but she does see hope in getting out in two years. So removing a life barrier in an accelerated learning environment and a culture of caring where she feels seen heard, empowered, and loved. And if we can remove a life barrier in an accelerated learning environment and a culture of caring, Maria will actually finish what she starts and get a, a certificate or degree. So for us, the no excuses movement of loving our students to success and that theory of change has three foundational components. The first is that we have built robust systems to eradicate poverty barriers. The second is that we built accelerated learning opportunities so that Maria can get 12 hours in a semester rather than 12 hours in a year. And there were real structural issues with that too. What we found when we started this work is that 82% of our students were part-time, but 80% of our scholarships were for whom? full-time students because we were historically acknowledging who our students were rather than changing our structures for who our student is. And then the third piece of loving our students as success is building a dynamic, interactive data analytics system that allows us to use predictive analytics to determine what and when Maria might need intervention before she actually experiences a crisis. Because what we've learned is that if our students are in a crisis, we're almost never going to be able to save them. That our job is to free them up to focus on their learning by preventing the crises that often prevent that. 
So the first step in this reformation was loving our students to success and building structures around that. The second part of this reformation was listening to the students we have, not the students we wished we had. And for me, that uh, involved a conversation with Dr. Sarah Goldergrab at Temple University and her Hope Center. And, <clears throat> and embracing data that we had been collecting ourselves for three or four years, but seeing it from an outside researcher who's aligning it with norms across the country was a kick in the gut. And this is what we learned when we listened to the students we had. 59% of our students are housing insecure, 54% of our students are food insecure, and 11% of our 10,132 students are homeless. And before you think, my goodness, the poverty in Amarillo is overwhelming, guess what? Our numbers are below the national averages for community colleges across the country. And it's not just a community college issue. In universities, the typical housing and food insecurity is in the mid-30s. Why that should scare us is the typical food insecurity and housing insecurity is around 60% for community colleges. And so there is a gap of students who have these challenges that come to us and because of those challenges never make it to the university. So we had to listen to the students we had and understand um, the challenges that she really brings with her and to build structures around facing those challenges. So we loved the student we had, then we had to listen to her, and then um, we had to empower her. And the way we empowered Maria um, is a little bit unique um, and is somewhat scary for some of my uh, colleagues. I talk about myself as a recovering faculty member and an academic at heart. Um, we empowered Maria by having her tell us what the perfect college looked and felt like to her. We empowered her to design Amarillo College for the 21st century. And what they said goes back to relationships and customer service. So we just listed companies that they thought were known for relationships and customer service on a wall. And that was the first meeting the second meeting, they came and we looked up the values for each one of those companies, some of which were local. Uh, we have Happy State Bank. It's a real bank named after Happy Texas. That's where it started. Um, but their culture is all around uh, the idea of happiness. We looked at Amarillo National Bank and First Bank Southwest. We looked at uh, BSA that has local hospital that um, has structured itself around the same concept of providing uh, intentional customer service. We looked at national companies like Zappos. Uh, we looked at some colleges that um, I added to the list because I knew they were doing unique and important things. And as a result, there were 53 values that were placed on a wall and we just uh, defined and voted on them. The third meeting was taking the list of 15 that they identified from the second meeting and narrowing them down to five. 
and our students wrote the values for the college. Those values are now written into every job description, are central to every employee and faculty evaluation, and are central to our hiring processes and HR. And here's what they are. These are the perfect college that our students said was for them. The first value is wow. At the end of any interaction with an AC employee, they wanted to go, wow. They really do care. Innovation, the second value, they needed to know that we saw them and were trying to be innovative and responding to who they are. The third value was the value of fun. And one of the things that um, really challenged me when I was listening to our students is how scared they were um, not just to come on our campus, but how fear was dominating their personal life, their educational life, and their work life. I had students that had talked about um, how they had spent six months circling our campus in their car, trying to get the courage to, get, to park it and get out of it. And when they get the courage to park and got out of it, um, one student told this really remarkable story of how she went into advising at, on her lunch break, took her six months as a foster kid to get the courage to park her car and get out of it, and she went into our advisor at, during her lunch break, and the advising secretary said, they're all at lunch, we'll make an appointment for you two weeks from now. As luck, God, whatever your beliefs are would have it, she ran into me in tears walking out of the building. So you can imagine what happened. She got advised <laughs> right then. Um, but that was central. That, was, that experience was when we were going through this conversation and we, we had to acknowledge that our structures, our comfort, has to be second to saving our community economically and socially. So because fear was so dominant, we have to make college fun and we do that. And, in a lot of ways, especially with our engagement strategies and student affairs. So we have family movie nights. We have family events where we're teaching everyone in the family from three to, to 80 um, about dancing or about applying to FAFSA or giving career uh, resume advice or doing mock interviews for the whole family, which is the fourth value, family. Um, it was a kick in the gut for our students to talk about how excluded their family members felt from the process of their student being at Amarillo College. And it started with the first thing that, that happened when they came and tried to fill out an enrollment and, and their family member would be standing there with them and what would our front desk say to them? I'm sorry, because of FERPA, I need you to step back. So immediately, we've done two things. We've cited a law that we don't really understand and that our families don't know, and so we've made them feel inferior because we know a law that they don't, and we have told them, you can't be a part of this, so we've broken trust immediately. Then, if they survive that process, they get to orientation and what happens? They check in, and what do we do to our families at that point? We kick them into a room with boring old fat administrators like me and bore them to tears for the whole day while their students are 
having fun and playing games, but typically our orientations are centered around the 18-year-old that likes to have fun and play games, and the 27-year-old may see that they're throwing balls and instead of going to uh, check in is going back to her car. So we had to um, actually read the FERPA law to understand what it said, rather than taking decades of interpretation of what people have told us it said, and had to acknowledge that we were using FERPA as an excuse not to do things that were hard or things that made our jobs more difficult, and we had to stop worshiping at the altar of FERPA. It, FERPA is just a privacy law, and so we've used the privacy law to say, I'm sorry, and, and we use other social monikers like, we gotta help these people grow up, they, we gotta teach them to be independent. Well, let me tell you, if you understand who Maria really is, she's been independent since she was 10 years old. This isn't about maturity. This is about fear that our systems have created and inflicted on she and her family. So wow, innovation, family, fun, and the final value that I think is the most powerful one is the value of yes. Our students have been told no their entire lives, at home, at work, at school, socially, and they just wanted someone to help them figure out how to get to yes. What I was not prepared for is that that value, more than any other value, would be central to changing the culture of our college. What we had to acknowledge is that for us to say yes to our students, we had to figure out how to say yes to each other. And that meant stopping all the pre-meetings to determine how we were going to control the meeting that was about territories and budgets more than about being effective and successful. And I'm going to tell you a little secret. Maria does not know or care what budget an employee's salary comes out of or what that employee's reporting structure is. She just knows she needs help, and you saying, I'm sorry, that's in another division, makes no hill of beans to her. Those are our internal processes that we have used and how we organize our work to now determine how we do our work. And they're not the same thing with the same purpose. So we empowered our students to help us understand um, what our college needed to look and feel like. Um, we listened to her, we love her, and the fourth part of the process for us is that we had to truly understand her. Because we knew that poverty, that social barrier, that life barriers were a big issue, um, we had to figure out how to respond to that. The, the, the most critical thing that we did, and I know some of you, some of my colleagues in the room have, um, have experienced the same thing and done the same thing. We had Dr. Donna Beagle come on our campus repeatedly, and every single employee, faculty, and staff have gone through poverty certification training. It's given us a common language to understand the difference between generational poverty and situational poverty, it helped us understand that a lot of our policies were written around what we would do if we found ourselves um, needing money, rather than what understanding what generational poverty teaches our students about themselves and about us. 
Um, every employee is now a part of, goes through poverty training and our new employee orientation. And 82 of my 600 employees have gone the extra step to be certified as poverty coaches with Donna Beagle. That was the single most important transformation. That moment of giving us a shared language and a common understanding of what our students were dealing with. The other thing that I wasn't prepared for is that it allowed our faculty and staff to take a deep sigh of relief and acknowledge that maybe the struggles that our students are having in our classrooms and our advising sessions aren't that we have lost our touch and, and aren't good instructors anymore. It could be that they're not coming to class or they're late to class or they're not getting things turned in because the city transportation sucks or the childcare provider uh, that lives in her on her floor in her apartment complex got sick that day or that she had to pick up an extra shift of work in order to pay a bill, and maybe not because um, our instruction was subpar. Our students need active learning. They need applied learning. They need pedagogical shifts. They need more technology. But fundamentally, what they need is for us to understand the challenges they bring to the classroom and to build structures around responding to those challenges. So love our students listen to her, empower her, understand her, and then we had to invest in her. And that meant getting rid of our, um, our budgeting processes that privileged historical budgeting and looked at any uh, additional money as um, almost un unattainable. We moved to an investment mindset of how we do our budgets. And it seems simple, the business world does this quite a bit, but we were looking at our data and one of the data points that we were looking at in our enrollment process is that there, were, there was a bottleneck in biology where we had wait list of wait list of students that needed to get in biology classes, which was a gateway to the other classes, which were gateways to getting into the health services program they wanted to be in. And we didn't have enough faculty and where we live, there aren't enough um, adjuncts qualified to teach. So we were just creating a bottleneck. The old budgeting perspective would have been, I'm sorry, you've got to ask for more additional faculty and we just don't have the money for it. And instead it was, look at the money we're leaving on the table by not hiring three biology faculty members. It meant using our data to understand where our students were having success and where they weren't, and investing in those places that were leading to increases in retention. So we use our retention calculator to evaluate where we invest our money. The social services systems that we put in place, which are critical and powerful that we'll talk about, cost about $600,000 a year. $300,000 of that a year we cover with grants, but we have put $300,000 into building the social services systems that I will share with you. It produced a 12% increase in retention. So for that $300,000 investment, we got a $4.6 million return. A 16 to one uh, return on investment. It makes no sense to say we don't have money to put these support systems in place 
it's actually insidious and poor budgeting if you say we don't have the money to put these support systems in place. Because you're, if you can't do it for social justice, do it for economics. When you invest in supporting your students to success, they stay longer, you get more money on the, on the front and the back end, and you grow your budget. With that $600,000 investment, there are several things that we put in place. One is that we put in place an advocacy and resource center uh, with four social workers at its center. I'm not asking our employees to be social workers, but I am asking our employees to understand that we have social services systems in place to support their students and to connect their students to it. We have food and clothing closets on all of our campuses, and they're important. I'm not telling you not to have them. I'm just challenging you with this fact. They are the start of the conversation, not the solution to poverty in your community. Your students need that support, but that's the beginning of the conversation, not the end. We had to add a legal services department because it cost a lot to be poor in this country and we penalize poverty in ways that we don't penalize other uh, social behaviors. And so we have pro bono employees that are helping our students get fines removed, that are helping our students with uh, immigration issues. Um, but we know with a no excuses philosophy, if we need Maria to finish her degree, we can't have legal issues that we would solve ourselves with a phone call get in the way of Maria's success. Um, we had to expand our counseling center because the mental health issues that go along in living in the war zone of poverty are real. We had to look at expanding campus resources and our data analytics helped us understand why tutoring for Maria was critical and why it needed to be a, a triggered requirement in every gen ed class we offer. And it's free to her and it's 24 seven. Um, most in person, but we have uh, online tutoring that's available to her after hours. We had to connect her to the resources that are in our community. In Texas last year alone, $8 billion, billion with a B, of aid went unclaimed. The stereotype that Donna Beagle helped us understand is that if you're living in the war zone of poverty, you know how to game the system and access those resources. And for her own research, as a PhD in sociology, is that we have about 2% of the people gaming the system, but we drown the 98% in bureaucracy because we're so afraid that that 2% might not get, they might get something they don't deserve. And I'm here to challenge you to let go of the bureaucracy and to actually trust your students. If they need help, provide it. Don't ask them repeatedly to tell you their story and then walk them to the next office where they have to repeat the story because we're inflicting trauma on our students when we're trying to help them. It's what I call, forgive me, it's what I call poverty porn, where we're asking you to perform your poverty and then we're taking you to the next office and we're asking you to perform it again. And you gotta perform your poverty in order to get help. At Amarillo College, with no excuses, if you say you need help, we're gonna provide it within 24 hours and we're not gonna ask for documentation and drown you in paperwork and applications. And part of that help is connecting the resources in the community that do require paperwork, 
but we have developed the kinds of relationships that our social workers can give them that information online or over the phone, and that if we say a student has a need, our community is stepping up. <clears throat> the last part of that is um, an emergency aid fund uh, through our uh, foundation, which is, I think last year we gave $120,000 $120, in emergency aid, which meant that we fixed transmissions, we paid deposits, we paid childcare, we um, paid uh, some tuition, um, we paid some medical bills, um, and we did it because we know and believe in Maria and know that these barriers cannot be what keeps her from being successful as a student and then as an employee. Because the reality is, if you can't do these things for your students and leveraging the social system supports that we have, then we're dooming them to needing them the rest of their lives. But if we can leverage them, and my hope is that Maria can leverage some of this support and quit one of her two part-time jobs so she can really focus on being a student and be successful and transfer to her university um, rather than swimming in uh, the bureaucracy that we inflict on her. It's critical that you invest in your students, but to invest in them, you have to empower them you got to understand them, you have to listen to them, and above all, you have to love them. And as a result, our completion rates is measured by Texas, not iPads, because Texas funds our completion rates uh, with incentive funding, went from 19% in 2014 to 53% right now. And all we did was commit to structurally and intentionally love Maria to success. And now she's graduating and transferring and you're hiring her and empowering her to help you change your workforce because she has the skills and the degree uh, that make her viable. And as a result, my community's education attainment rate is nearing 40%. Uh, and we know if we're going to change and diversify our economy, we've got to get it to 45 to 50 percent. But we started in the low teens. You can do this, and it doesn't take decades. It just takes intentionality and commitment and, above all, courage. We're excited for what we have in store for 2020. As always, please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have ideas for future episodes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.